Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop into iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. Sun Exchange is a solar power marketplace for the crypto economy. Sun Exchange members all over the world are earning cryptocurrency for helping to deliver solar power generation to businesses and communities in emerging markets. Visit thesunexchange.com to start earning solar powered money today. Start Engine is a regulated ICO platform with a community of 155,000 plus registered users that's focused on issuing tokenized securities. Go to startengine.com/unchained for a 20% discount on setup services to launch your regulated ICO. This is not legal advice. My guest today is Dominic Williams, president and chief scientist of Definity. Welcome Dominic. Hi Laura, thanks for having me. Let's start with a simple question. What is Definity? So Definity is a project to create a network, open public network, that will um, produce something called the Internet Computer. And our ambition is for the Internet Computer to host the world's next generation of software and data. And what does that mean to be a world computer? I mean, we have computers now that host software and data. Sure. So um, it means a lot of things, actually. So... To begin with, it introduces the idea that the Internet itself will host software and data, as opposed to, you know, monopolistic cloud hosting providers like Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure. So that's a big change. So the idea is that, you know, rather than building your systems on the back of another company's infrastructure, you actually build your systems directly on a public infrastructure, on the Internet itself, using the Internet computer. So that's a big change to begin with. But the Internet computer also brings some new properties as a platform. So actually, it greatly simplifies the development of new software systems. And this addresses one of the biggest problems with the existing technology stack, that it's very, very complex. And, you know, if you look at the balance sheet of, uh, you know, most, most IT systems in use today, uh, with, which represents the total cost of ownership, you know, the vast majority of the cost is actually the human capital involved in developing systems and maintaining them and administering them. And so we, we believe we can greatly reduce that. But also, of course, the Internet computer is based on crypto technologies. So the Internet computer itself is a hack-proof system. You can't hack the Internet computer. And if you write software that doesn't have bugs, then your software will also be hack-proof. So it addresses the need uh, of security. It also uh, has a design that ensures that applications running on it are always available and never lose their data. So that's uh, another big advance. Um, systems running on the internet computer are highly interoperable. Um, we have mechanisms that enable developers of systems to preserve the privacy of data 
right? And that could be you know, anything from private company documents to user data. And we enable people uh, to do that in, in a way that doesn't you know, involve them doing anything special or having to write cryptography themselves. And we also support a new kind of software called autonomous software that we believe will provide a basis to to re-engineer internet services as we know them today. I want to unpack a lot of what you said here. You were talking about how this internet computer would provide a lot of services that are now offered by businesses. And I know you've talked about something called open decentralized business infrastructures. What, what is that? Okay. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, the internet computer we believe will provide a better way just to build private business infrastructures. But we also support a new kind of software that's autonomous. And this makes it possible to create systems that don't belong to any individual company. They exist independently. And essentially, these software systems have an inbuilt governance system, which is tokenized, that is used to incorporate new updates into the software. But effectively, you're creating, you know, you're applying the open source software development model to a running service, okay? So sort of open decentralized business infrastructures are one of the applications of this technology. So there are many industries that would benefit from sharing a platform. You know, commonly talked about application is supply chain optimization. But as it turns out, there are many, many applications where you can create a platform that's shared amongst the participants in an industry to deliver efficiencies or new functionality. I wanted to ask you also earlier, you were saying that Definity can replace some of these human capital processes or functions of businesses. Um, one of them that I noticed you mentioned in a blog post was R&D. How can, how can a machine do R&D instead of a human? I, I was confused by that. Oh, no, we're not suggesting that um, the machine does R&D at all. So the, with respect to private business systems, and there's like several applications. So you've got like private business systems, you've got DBIs, which is really a very corporate application. And you have internet services. So we want to reinvent internet services, anything from like Salesforce through to an internet dating app. But with respect to you know, reinventing how people build software systems, private software systems, Divinity, if you like, strikes a kind of grand bargain. Okay, So the internet computer works um, by applying advanced cryptography, distributed computing, advanced virtual machine science, all kinds of things, right? Um, and under the hood of Definity, there's a lot more computation going on, and there's also a lot more replication of data. So with respect to computation, as soon as you introduce cryptography, you're already going to be doing all this processing, right? It's quite compute intensive. And also Definity, you know, under the hood, is, is running symmetric replicas of applications, right? So if you call a function in your application, well, actually, inside the Definity network, you know, there are multiple instances of your application all running the same function at the same time. And if if it's generating data, you know, saving the same data to the state. And that's how we make sure that applications are always available and don't, don't lose data. So as a result of this, you know, the Definity network will you know, cycle for cycle and byte for byte is more CPU, more storage in any task, okay? But, you know, we think the simplification of the platform is worth it. So when you 
create software on Definity. Most people, I believe, will use a new language called ActorScript, um, which has been created by one of our staff engineers who created WebAssembly. I don't know if you're aware of WebAssembly, but it's the sort of next generation of the web. It's already in all the main web browsers. In, yeah, we're you know, going to talk about that in a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's an Internet Explorer, Chrome, Firefox, you know, Safari and so on. And uh, he, he was the co-designer of that, continues to lead the standards process, and he also is an architect of uh, V8, which is the JavaScript engine inside Chrome that also runs this thing called Node, which is the most widely used plat- sort of back-end platform in the world currently. And so you can imagine that you could write this actor script inside of the web browser. You, you know, it runs on the, the WebAssembly virtual machine inside the browser. And that this actor script would be able to sort of seamlessly call into actor script running on the internet computer. And the internet computer itself doesn't have any kind of storage API. There's no database API. There's no file model for, you know, file storage or anything like that. Actually, everything's just kept in software. So the idea is that, you know, when you're writing you know, the back end of your system, you just write the abstract logic and, you know, you keep your data in data collections in memory. And this basically, you know, represents an absolutely colossal simplification when you're developing a new system. So today, you know, when people create systems, you know, if they, unless they, you know, if you're using, you know, a software as a service product like Salesforce, of course, you just connect it over the web. But if you want to run your own system or create your own system, you know, you'll have a database, right, that needs backing up and replicating and a hot spare and all that kind of stuff. You'll have probably a middleware server with uh, microservices on it. You'll have maybe a memcache server. You're going to have web servers. And again, you know, you need load balancing, a failover. And that's what Definity can replace? Exactly. So, you know, you're going to have business logic that's distributed over that whole system of multiple components. So if you think about it, you know, in, in that that kind of system will be some logic inside the, the web server that generates the pages. There'll be some logic inside those microservices. There'll be some logic in the database. Uh, data itself is pretty distributed. So, and all of these components, by the way, fail independently. And so it's a complex thing to put together. And of course, it's completely insecure. Like there's no way you can make that secure. So what you do is you surround it with a firewall and you hope that the firewall will keep everybody away from your insecure system. But but sadly, you know, a firewall isn't much good these days. And, you know, I can go onto 4chan and put a bount, you know, Bitcoin bounty up. And, 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 you know, someone will get me into any company of my choosing if I want. You know, not that wow. I do want, but, you know. So firewalls don't really work that well. So you've got a system that is inherently very difficult to develop and maintain. Right. And, you know, many software engineers will tell you that. Sometimes they despair of their job because most of their time is not just writing the, the logic involved in the system and creating a good user, creating a great user experience. Most of their time is involved with trying to make these different pieces talk to each other, and there's an inherent complexity that's involved in today's IT stack. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you. You mentioned your customers. Who who is using Definity's technology now, or who who are your ideal users? Well, I mean, Definity's. You know, current, currently under development. I mean, there's a test network. I mean, people know what's there at the moment. Uh, it's a complex project. So we, uh, you know, developing m- multiple technologies in, in, in parallel. So, for example, when you write software, it runs on WebAssembly. Uh, there's a network that forms computations and stores data. And uh, there's a test network with some thousands of full nodes running at the moment. And, you know, we're pretty um, clear on what we need to 
Danita. And well, you, you know, hinted we that make- Fortune 500 companies are using Definity's technology. No, we're working with several companies that are interested in the technology. But, I mean, no, the network's not live yet, so it's not possible to, you know, run a system on it yet. So do you imagine that it's going to be more enterprise or like, is that your target? No, I mean, uh, so the internet computer is a much broader thing. So the purpose of the internet computer, firstly, is just to reinvent the way we create software systems and also reinvent the way that they're hosted, right? So we want the internet itself to host software and data. So that's a big change. And the whole world runs on software. So you can apply this platform to many different needs. So one of the most exciting applications of the internet computer is the reinvention of today's internet services as open source businesses. Okay. So I want to get into more details around Definity. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you about your background. What did you do before you started Definity and how did you come to start it? So I'm a serial uh, entrepreneur. I've been in the tech industry for quite a long time. My last venture was a computer game. It's an MMO, so it's a massively multiplayer online game. And it grew some millions of users. And um, I, I got a particular interest in distributed computing and I actually created all of the distributed infrastructure that supported that game. And I'd had some prior exposure to crypto. Um, you know, uh, back in 1999, I'd using this library called Crypto++, created by a guy called Wei Dai. And I'd come across this paper called B-Money through that. So I was kind of interested in the area. And then in 2013, when you know Bitcoin went through one of its uh, dramatic price rises and was, uh, my attention was drawn back to it, and 2013, I, I switched over to crypto full-time. And how did you come up with the idea for Definity and, and start it? So uh, at the end of uh, 2013, I was poking around, uh, looking at the internals of some of the altcoins um, that were being created then, hoping I could find something that would a- enable me to create a, a coin for the games industry. Um, and I was hoping that you know people could sell virtual goods in one game for this currency, t- take it to another game and buy new virtual goods. Um, and when I was looking at the internals of these uh, coins, I sort of you know, saw there are a lot of shortcomings and unresolved problems. And so in 2014, I created a project called Pebble, and it was the aim was to create a cryptocurrency that you know was, was much faster, scaled to, to enormous capacities. We wanted to do things like recurring micropayments, and the idea was that internet services like Facebook could would, would turn off advertising in exchange for receiving these recurring micropayments. So um, you know I set about trying to solve that problem, and initially um, I was uh, just drawing on uh, traditional Byzantine fault tolerant consensus protocol science, and I sort of dug into that, and there's a thing called uh, asynchronous, leader-free Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus protocols. And I spent some months initially just, just studying them full-time and then eventually began to, you know, repurpose them and devise my own. And, you know, by the sort of end of the summer of 2014, I, you know, I felt that we had pretty good solutions. And I teamed up with Artir Mogbul, who is currently Chief Operating Officer of Definity. And I, there's a guy I'd met um, working at a VC that funded this computer game that grew so much. And, you know, we sort of looked into raising money for the project and sort of scaling it out. At, at the time, I think people were very obsessed with Bitcoin. And if you sort of proposed alternative centralized network protocols, people looked at you with great skepticism. And the venture community, you know, had a really 
come to terms with the whole kind of centralization movement at that stage. And so you know, we spoke to a lot of people, but you know, we pro- probably just educating them. Very difficult to actually raise money. So uh, at the end of uh, 2014, we decided to give up on Pebble. Um, but at the beginning of 2015, I devised some new computer science. Um, actually found a way of uh, creating random numbers in a decentralized network of any size in a way that was to- totally unmanipulable, uh, unmanipulable, very, very efficient, uh, pretty much unstoppable and so on. So once I found this way of doing that, it's, called, it's, a, it's a technique called threshold relay. Uh, I, I realized that, well, you know, I, I can actually create a decentralized network that could run at much higher speeds than anything does today um, that could be scaled out and you know, I'd, I'd been kind of close to the Ethereum project, and I realized as well that, you know, blockchain computers were much more interesting than cryptocurrency ledgers. So I thought, okay. And, you know, I pursued um, that line of thinking, and I, I, I realized that, look, you know, you could create a blockchain computer that um, is fast, infinitely scalable, um, could host software with fantastic properties, you know, security, availability, and all these things, um, that could act as a decentralized cloud and be you an know, open public cloud computing resource that would also enable people to develop systems in a whole new way. And the original aim of Affinity was to uh, enable, if you like, the re-engineering of the internet so that you know, m- many of the monopolistic internet services of today could be recreated as open source, what we call open source businesses, where the service itself doesn't belong to any company or individual, but can update itself. And saw a lot of advantages in that. And so, I mean, if you go back on the Wayback Machine, at the Internet Archives, you'll see an um, early Definity page with an absolutely horrible Definity logo that I created myself. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's describing exactly this, you know, the decentralized cloud. And back then, you know, I used to think about how do you create a, a search engine on a decentralized network, for example? How do you create, you know, recreate Gmail, you know, social networks, and Twitter? And that, that was how, how it all started. And the name of the name Definity, of course, comes from decentralized infinity. Mm. I wasn't aware of that. That's interesting. So we're going to get into more details around some of these technical aspects that you mentioned, like threshold relay. And we're also going to talk about your governance system, the blockchain nervous system. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsors. Interested in raising capital through a security token offering? Start Engine is your full stack solution. Start Engine, a regulated ICO platform with a community of over 155,000 registered users, was founded in 2014 by Howard Marks, co-founder of Activision Blizzard. Since the implementation of the Jobs Act, Start Engine has helped over 160 companies raise capital. In fact, Start Engine can help a company build its own tokens and is creating a secondary market upon which those tokens can be traded. In short, Start Engine provides a complete token ecosystem. If your company wants to launch a security token offering, just go to startengine.com slash unchained for a free consultation and a 20% discount on future regulated ICO setup services. That's startengine.com slash unchained. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With 0 to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This is not legal advice. Sun Exchange is a solar power marketplace for the crypto economy. Sun Exchange members all over the world are earning cryptocurrency while solar powering businesses and communities in emerging markets. 
Through the sunexchange.com, for as little as $10, and in just a few clicks, you can purchase solar cells and lease them to projects in the world's sunniest regions, earning you an income stream of monetized sunshine, paid in Bitcoin. SunExchange members can earn between 10 and 15% IRR, backed by the power of the sun. Founded in 2015, SunExchange is operating solar projects across Southern Africa, entirely powered by our members' solar cells. Our partners include SolarCoin, the United Nations Development Programme, and the Energy Web Foundation. Visit www.thesunexchange.com to check terms and eligibility to join the crypto solar revolution. Start earning solar-powered money today. I'm speaking with Dominic Williams of Definity. So let's talk about your consensus mechanism, Threshold Relay, and the decentralized randomness beacon and uh, all the other aspects. And describe to me how your consensus mechanism differs from the other consensus algorithms. Well, um, you know, first of all, consensus is a difficult branch of computer science. And to put it in perspective, you know, undergraduate level and so on, I got a whole bunch of prizes. I've been, you know, working in sort of field of distributed computing at one form or another for more than 20 years. And, you know, it took me some months of studying to really understand just traditional Byzantine fault tolerance consensus, right? So it's, I think there's a lot of different protocols out there. I think a lot of them should be looked at quite a bit of skepticism, frankly. But, you know, the Definity system is surprisingly simple. We lean on traditional cryptography to make things possible that wouldn't be, you couldn't do with traditional distributed computing techniques. So the foundational technique is known as threshold relay. And it works by applying uh, something called unique deterministic threshold signatures to generate a sequence of random numbers. But the clever bit is that the sequence of random numbers is completely unmanipulable. So even if you know you had a network of computers and they're all controlled by the bad guy, right, the adversary, even he couldn't manipulate the sequence of random numbers. Uh, so that's obviously a valuable property. The other great property is that Threshold Relay works with a network of any size. So, you know, we aim for Definity Network to incorporate tens of millions of computers. So that's a very important piece. And it's super efficient. So each successive random number is produced by a broadcast of only 22 kilobytes of data. And you can run it extremely quickly if you want to. Now, the marvelous bit about it is through Threshold Relay, we're able to have a network of any size agree upon this sequence of random numbers, which is on, which is generated in an unstoppable way and is completely unmanipulable um, without running a consensus protocol. So, so in terms the of the difference with Bitcoin, Bitcoin also is random, but in order to get that randomness, you have to waste a lot of, or not waste, but you have to use up a lot of electricity. Is that the difference? Yeah, so proof of work actually performs a number of different product uh, functions at once. So, the cost of generating um, a block is some, is, it provides something called civil resistance. It makes it difficult for an adversary to come into the network and achieve 51% of the mining power and sort of over, you know, break the fault bounds of the, of the network and take control. But, but it's also a random number generator, right? So the idea is that you know, everyone's beavering away, you know, spinning the nonce in their block until the hash which is a number, obviously, falls beneath a target. And because you can you know, only find a nonce that brings your, the hash of the block beneath the target by brute force, 
you know, effectively it's a kind of random number generator, you know, where your chance of you know, finding a winning nonce is proportional to the amount of computing power you're applying. But, but ultimately it's a random number generator. So, you know, nobody knows who's going to create the next block. And that's very important for a variety of reasons. But you, you could call it a kind of caveman, caveman method, right, of uh, producing random numbers. It's extraordinarily expensive. The, the numbers are produced uh, in, in something called a Poisson distribution. So, but just actually, I want to ask you something because the Bitcoin mining process has long been credited with giving the Bitcoin network its security. So, does Definity give up anything in terms of security by using this other method that doesn't require as much computer power or electricity? Because simply the, the investment that you need to make in Bitcoin to do that is, I think, what people say gives it its security. Well, I mean, you know. The Bitcoin community is obviously very keen to make the case for proof of work. I, I personally believe it's not very secure and Divinity will be much, much more secure. I wouldn't but, be satisfied. But what makes it secure? secure? Well, I mean, I, I think there's, I forget the numbers, but, you know, the studies out there that show that, you know, with an investment of, say, you know, $100 million, you could easily overwhelm, uh, you know, easily achieve 51% of the hash power of the Bitcoin network, right? Wait, just just for the mining equipment or including the electricity? Well, that's just, in, you know, once you've got the equipment, if you've got the electricity, you don't have to run the, you don't have to run it forever in order to disrupt the network, right? I mean, if someone bought the equipment, you know, got the agreements with the electricity providers and, you know, turned it on and switched off the Bitcoin network for a day, well, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin network's probably toast because, you know, it's one of its US, one of the USPs of any decentralized network. Wait, I'm sorry, how, I don't understand how you would turn off the Bitcoin network for a day just by buying mining equipment. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, so any any decentralized protocol has something called fault bounds, right? So it can continue producing agreement so long as the adversary, you know, some notional attacker, controls less than a share of the network. So if you control 51%, actually, you don't even need that, of, of the hashing power in the Bitcoin network, and you're an adversary, you can turn it off. You can break the agreement. You know, you can break the protocol so the protocol won't produce agreement anymore. Oh, kind of like wipeout attacks, like where you're mining on a different chain and then you wipe out the chain that are, that all the non-bad actors are on. Is that what you're talking about? Well, so, so for example, I mean, a, a, you know, it's sort of widely known that there's a thing called a double spend attack that can be performed if you have 51% of the network. Turns out that you can actually do some attacks with, with less than that. But, you know, if let's say you've got 51% of the network, you can now, you could just sort of double spend by continuously building a new longest chain. But if you continually forked the tip, it wouldn't progress and the system would become unusable. Right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, it's diff- It's still different from turning off. <laughs> no, <laughs> I thought you were off. being literal. No, it's, it's no, no, I mean, well, I, I mean, the, the mining, I mean, everybody else, let's say you had 51%, the 49% would still have their mining equipment, but you could effectively turn off the network in the sense that it wouldn't be processing transactions anymore. Okay, but so to go back to Definity, so I understand that you are able to get the same kind of randomness as proof of work without the expenditure of electricity. But then how does the security come in? So, you know, we're using just more advanced computer science. So first of all, with respect to the sequence of random numbers, even if the adversary controlled 100% of the network, they couldn't manipulate that sequence of random numbers. It's unmanipulable by the mathematics involved. So that's one example of how, you know, we achieve greater security. But with respect to 
But if they are controlling 100% of them, then once each, for each block reward they get, couldn't they, um, you know, exclude certain transactions and only include certain ones or, you know, whatever it might be or no? Sure. sure. So that's another aspect, right, of these systems, which is that if, if the adversary controls a majority, you can perform censorship. But that's just, I mean, I'm just looking focusing on one particular aspect. The, the generation of random numbers is unmanipulable. So that's a great foundation. But um, with respect to ensuring the adversary doesn't control the majority of the network, that is called civil resistance. And, you know, you want to make it as expensive as possible for an adversary to build up that kind of presence in the network. He, he would have to acquire an enormous amount of divinities. So the current cap, if you like, in the last um, pre-sale round of the project is $2 billion. And quite possibly, you know, the network in production will have an even higher token cap. So a lot of that will be staked in various ways in the network. So you can create a very large capital impediment to the adversary. And, and what's more, I mean, if you were an adversary wanting to attack the Definity network, let's say you are some, you know, a James Bond villain, you would have to acquire that stake and then use it to break the network. But in the process of doing so, you would be destroying your own investment. Yeah, so I mean, this is all, yeah, I mean, this isn't actually that different from Bitcoin, because a lot of people say if somebody attacked the network, then of course, the value of Bitcoin would drop. And so the benefit that they would get from attacking the network wouldn't, the financial benefit wouldn't be there. And it's similar with, with staking. But actually, let's, let's talk about the staking. Yeah, just, just one last piece. There. I mean, there's, some other, there's many other differences. So, I mean, it's true that Bitcoin has some nice properties, but they're very basic, frankly. I mean, one of the problems is that because of the pooling of mining, in, in practice, you know, the network is driven by a relatively small number of participants. And by contrast, for example, with Definity, you know, the network will launch uh, with tens of thousands of individual participants. And there isn't, you know, you don't have this sort of handful of points of failure, right? So if you wanted to hack, say, the, you know, the software, but, you know, critical pieces of software running the network, it would be much harder because it's a much more distributed and decentralized network than you see today. And that's one of the uh, you know, key features of Affinity. We were able to combine you know, millions of individual participants. or, or you know, they, Some of these participants may be owned by the same entity, but nonetheless, there are many, many more individual nodes in the network, all of which are participating in producing blocks. So there's a number of different ways. What I don't understand is why would you expect that you wouldn't still also end up with mining pools in Definity? Well, because there's no economic advice. I mean, well, so Definity doesn't work like Bitcoin. There's no proof of work. So there's first, first of all, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum work by placing miners into a competition where yeah. they try and solve proofs of work, if you like. And if they're lucky and they solve the current puzzle, they get a, a reward. That doesn't happen in Definity. Right. But, but what I'm saying is, so with both Bitcoin and Ethereum with proof of work, as far as I understand, the reason why people enter mining pools is because the payments that they would receive if they were mining on their own would be spaced out unevenly. But if they join a mining pool, then the pool will know over time, okay, this person has like 1% of all the hash rate. Obviously, nobody, I don't know if an individual has that much, but but um, they can say over time, we will pay you 1% of the hash rate. 
in an even fashion rather than, you know, one block reward now and then one six months from now and then one two weeks after that and, you know, whatever. So with Definity, where it's also done randomly, then wouldn't the payouts to individual miners be similarly not evenly spaced out? And so wouldn't there still be incentive to join a mining pool? I mean, Definity is just generally speaking a much more sophisticated system. So it's difficult to draw lessons from a very simple proof of work system and apply them to the Definity network. So each node in Definity has an approximately similar hardware specification. And each node in the network acts as a replica, right, for in some shard that stores some number, you know, some subset of the applications hosted on the internet computer. And the protocol has cryptography um, schemes uh, incorporated into it that enable it to apply a sort of service level agreement, if you like, to each individual node. So let's say uh, you were running a Definity node. It would look something like a mid to high end server machine. It would be required to have a certain amount of storage and a certain amount of processing capacity. Once that's added to the Definity network, the network will fill its storage space with cryptographic junk that's predictable that you have to encrypt in a special way. And this enables the the, the network to interrogate you to check that indeed you have performed the role and you've uniquely stored this data. And economically speaking, uh, the most efficient way of doing that is with you know, a dedicated machine. It's designed, it's designed in that way. So how could you pull it? How could you pull that? I mean, each machine has to exist as a separate economic entity. It performs a role and it gets rewarded for providing for performing that role. Okay. You know, Bitcoin is a completely different thing. And, and so, same with Ethereum. I mean, you know, everyone's performing the same. Every node in the network is applying the same transactions to some shared state, right? Okay. There's no notion of individual. There's no notion of individual nodes that perform some discrete role. So, you know, you know, let's, let's say if you want to in- increase your economic presence in the Definity network, you have to connect more nodes to the network, right? So each node has the same role as every other node. Mm-hmm. And you, 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 know, you increase your earnings by installing more nodes. Right. Uh, there's no way you can pull those, right? Because uh, you, you can't consolidate them. Where, whereas, you know, in, in, in uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, people are able to have some hashing hardware and sort of collaborate with other people with hashing hardware in a pool so they get some kind of stream of income with less variance. But that's a complete, completely different kind of system. The hashing has no functional purpose, remember. Right? Okay, it's right. just what you're doing is just burning as much electricity as you can to try and increase your chances of you know, getting the next block reward. Right, which has the side benefit of adding security to the network. Um, so uh, let's, let's move on to... Well, just, 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 just to be clear, you know, Definity will provide much, much better security than, than that. We, we don't believe that just... But, you know, having a competition to burn electricity, which also has hugely a negative impact on the environment, provides the best security. And there are, you know, bunch of, you know, clear theoretical scientific reasons why that doesn't provide the best security. It's just that, you know, Bitcoin took off. It was a mechanism for making early decentralized networks work. And, you know, these tokens got enormous values. So all kinds of people around the world started, you know, joining the competition to try and find the next block to get the block reward. But, you know, that that doesn't mean, you know, that's not scientific evidence um, or a reason 
that this design produces the best security for a decentralized network. It definitely doesn't. And it also doesn't produce good performance, uh, predictability, and it's very, very difficult also to, to scale it out and so that you can increase the capacity of those kind of networks. You have a system for making protocol upgrades that you call the blockchain nervous system. How does that work? How does it decide to upgrade the protocol? So the blockchain nervous system is actually a much broader system. It's what you might describe as an algorithmic governance system. And it actually controls all aspects of the network. So it can adopt or reject proposals that are submitted to it. And those proposals can touch on pretty much anything. You know, it can adjust the economic parameters of the network. It can freeze uh, miscreant, sy- miscreant systems. Say, for example, someone discovered a, something terrible like an ISIS slave market running on the platform. Um, it can help broken systems fix themselves. Um, and among other things, it, it can also up- upgrade the protocol itself. And it does that by adopting a proposal to run a installer described by a hash that, you know, essentially installs a new version of the full node software on the, you know, machines backing the protocol. That makes sense? Well, I actually, I have a number of questions about this for you because, so one thing that I noticed was when you described it, you said that this blockchain nervous system could have what you called, quote, privileged control over token ownership, and it could do things like repatriate stolen funds. That sounds like centralized control. So how does that work? So in a sense, it's, you know, decentralized, centralized control. So the blockchain nervous system um, plays the role of network administrator. And in that sense, you know, it, it is a central entity that controls the network. However, you know, it's an algorithmic governance system that's controlled in a decentralized way. The basis of this system are things called neurons. And a neuron is a a voting unit whose voting power is proportional to the number of definitives locked up inside. And these neurons can be configured to follow each other. So let's say you wanted to get involved in uh, you know, the governance system, um, for which you get rewarded, by the way. So every time you're on your own votes, you receive rewards. Probably you wouldn't feel qualified to vote on proposals relating to cryptography. So you would configure your neuron to follow other neurons when proposals um, submitted to the system with the cryptography topic. So, for example, you might pick five neurons whose addresses have been published by, you know, individuals who are sort of experts in the field and who are members of the Definity community. So let's say, you know, you might configure your neuron to follow, you know, Timo Hanke, Manish Mohedi, Jan Kamenich, those kind of people. And so let's say there are five of them, right? So your neuron follows five cryptographers in the community. You might configure it so that if three of these other neurons vote to adopt a proposal, your neuron votes to adopt the proposal too. If three of those five vote to reject the proposal, your neuron votes to reject the proposal too. And if none of those, neither of those conditions occur before a timeout, then you vote to reject the proposal. So you will have staked some definitives to create this neuron. Um, you can only get those definitives back by dissolving the neuron. Actually, the time it takes you to dissolve the neuron is configurable. And the longer it takes you to dissolve the neuron, 
the greater the rewards you receive in relation to the number of finishes you state each time you vote, and the greater the voting power. So let's say you wanted to, to achieve the maximum possible returns from your definitives, you might create a neuron that takes four years to dissolve. And that will maximize the voting power and the rewards you receive in, in proportion to the definitives you've staked. So, you know, your objective as a neuron holder is for the blockchain nervous system to take decisions that ultimately increase the value of definitive tokens, which, you know, probably is a proxy for network adoption. And, uh, you know, Obviously, if you've created a neuron which takes four years to dissolve, you know, you're very keen that the value of uh, those definitives locked up in the neuron um, increase, right? And that decisions are adopted that will increase you know, the value of each definity token. So, in a sense, the objective of the blockchain nervous system is just simply to increase the value of definitives, although that's a kind of proxy for adoption. But something that I don't understand is you've called the blockchain nervous system an AI. But when I read how it worked, it seemed more like delegated proof of stake. And what you just described also sounded like delegated proof of stake. And you've also described the blockchain nervous system as liquid democracy, which a lot of people use typically as another term for delegated proof of stake. So where does the AI come in? I don't understand that. Well, I wouldn't call it an AI. I'd call it an algorithmic governance system, first of all. But, you know, it certainly has elements of proof of stake, although it's nothing to do whatsoever with consensus. It's just a governance system. And it has um, elements of, uh, you know, uh, liquid democracy. But there are significant differences, right? So, you know, each neuron is an economic entity, you know, which wraps some definitives. And, you know, if you're a holder of one of these neurons, you can't get the definitives inside back without dissolving, and that takes some time. So you're very keen you know, the incentive structure is set up so you're very keen that this neuron takes you know, votes for proposals that will ultimately increase the value of the network. Um, the neurons themselves are managed on client devices. So you'll configure your phone or your laptop with neuron client software. So the neurons, if you like, um, you know, distributed around the edges of the network. Nobody really knows what the follow relationships are, and it will sort of cascade decisions. But, you know, it has some interesting properties with respect to AI in the sense that, you know, neurons are following other neurons. It's not quite like delegated uh, proof of stake or liquid democracy okay. where you just say, hey, this person's got my vote. I wanted to ask also about how the BNS will learn from market feedback. You had given this example in a Medium post about how, for instance, a demagogue neuron might persuade other neuron owners on Reddit to follow him. And then that could result in a stupid proposal being adopted. And you said that then the markets would not be fooled for long, and I'm quoting here, and react negatively, leading people to examine how and if their neurons voted for the proposal. The neuron of the demagogue would be removed from follow relationships. And over time, through such actions, the follow relationship shall tend toward more optimal forms. But who would remove the, the neuron of the demagogue? Like, you, you use the passive voice there, but who is removing this demagogue neuron? Well, you don't, I mean, the, the demagogue can keep his neuron, but people will just unfollow it. So in the example with cryptography follows, let's say that you followed some individual who was a loudmouth on Twitter, and you configured your neuron to follow this dude. And, um, you know, somehow he was a sort of uh, fraud, if you like, and he got, but he got lots of people to follow him 
And eventually, somehow, because lots of people followed him, you know, he was able to submit a proposal to the blockchain nervous system that made some rather dubious technical changes. And these these were adopted. And, and because of all the people following him, you know, you know the, the system started using this stuff. Well, you know, the, the consequences could be quite dire, and no doubt it would uh, you know, impact the, the value of Definity tokens, right? So, you know, you, you might look at this and think, crikey, why on earth is my neuron following this guy? Okay, but to understand, so when you said that the BNS will learn from market feedback, it's not really learning, right? It's just that people are unfollowing that neuron, right? Well, I mean, if, you know, it, it's an algorithmic governance system. And it makes proposals as a result of neurons voting. And neurons vote for the most part by, you know, automatically as a result of their follow relationships. So if a proposal is adopted by the blockchain nervous system that results in some kind of negative m- market impact, people may look at their, you know, the, the follow relationships they've configured into their neuron and say, oh, hang on, <laughs> my neuron voted for this stupid proposal. Right. And um, it voted for this stupid proposal because I'm following these people or this person. I'm going to reconfigure it to follow someone far more sensible. Right. So it's people learning, not the BNS itself. Right. Well, people people are responding to market data effectively and changing the follow relationships between the neurons so that it makes better decisions. So in that sense, you know, in the sense it's an algorithmic governance system that, that where, where, for the most part, neurons, you know, act completely automatically. You know, it's kind of learning. These follow relationships between neurons are being reconfigured. So if I'm running a neuron and I have made this error of following the demagogue neuron, I don't unfollow it? My neuron will unfollow it by itself? No, you will yourself reconfigure the follow relationship you're you know oh. so you've got let's say that the, the you know the make affinity great again dude who's you know got tons of people to configure their neurons to follow his on some topic and maybe some stupid proposals um being adopted by the system you know the consequence if, if there are negative market consequences which, which you, you'd expect at least over a sort of medium to long term uh you, you'd expect people to reconfigure their neurons so they're not following this guy, right? So in that sense, you know, the system is evolving because remember, for the most part, these neurons vote automatically, right? And okay, right. But there sense, is that manual, there's that moment where the yeah, change sure. happens manually. Oh, sure. Okay. It's not a, it's not a completely, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a sort of uh, general purpose intelligence. It's a sort of hybrid system. Okay. Uh, there's more I want to ask about this, but we're running out of time. So I'm going to just move on. I want to ask you, we mentioned WebAssembly before. Um, why did you guys choose WebAssembly as your programming language? And why is what, what, and first of all, also just if you want to explain it for listeners who don't know and then explain why sure. you chose it. So WebAssembly is uh, sort of one of the first open standards for universal software that can run anywhere. And it was originally conceived to allow um, much more sophisticated web applications to be created. So you can think of it a, a bit like Java for the web, right? But, you know, it's been designed um, with the benefit of all of the kind of learnings of the past 20, 25 years or something. So it's a really nice specification for a virtual machine for which you can uh, create bytecode, right? 
And in principle, you can create that bytecode using any computer language, any programming language. So that's nice. So you know, the idea is that you, know, you can create like a WebAssembly applet using the programming language of your choice, and this will run inside the browser at near native speeds. And does that lead to any sort of imprecision, which would be a bad thing if you're obviously dealing with money? Well, so the computations performed on the internet computer have to be completely deterministic. So for the most part, WebAssembly uh, is completely deterministic. I think there's one instruction relating to floating point operations that isn't deterministic. Okay, I don't know what that means. A floating point's like a, you know, a number with a decimal point, right? And so that particular instruction can't be used um, in software that runs on the internet computer. <laughs> okay. But for money, there's often decimal points. Yeah. So we're talking about a virtual machine, right? So it's nothing to do with money. We're talking about a virtual machine, a virtual computer that you can run bytecode byte software on. So, yeah, it's roughly equivalent to, say, the, the Java virtual machine. So, you know, with, you can compile the Java programming language down to Java bytecode, and you can run it on a Java virtual machine. And that virtual, Java virtual machine might be implemented in an IoT device, uh, on a laptop, on a server, whatever, right, on, on lots of different kinds of operating systems. So, so you know, so that me, was the great I'm, thing I'm with just, Java. I'm just confused because I think oftentimes these different crypto networks or the different blockchain systems usually are dealing with money, so are you saying that Definity is going to not be used as often for financial transactions? No, no, not at all. I, I, I don't, <laughs> there's, just, there's just no relationship between the virtual machine and money. I mean, oh, a virtual okay. machine is, yeah, a virtual machine is, is, is like a virtual computer that you can, it's a, it's a standard that you can use to create software that runs on any instance of that virtual machine, wherever it may be. Hosted. So, you know, the, all of the main web browsers now have implementations of the WebAssembly virtual machine. And that means that you can compile, um, you know, WebAssembly software from some programming language, and it will run in any web browser on whatever platform that web browser is, is running on, right? So it's just a standard for creating software. And it's an important standard because it, one of the first time, really, we've had, a, you know, open spec for a virtual machine that can be implemented absolutely everywhere without any kind of licensing restrictions and so on. So basically, the developers will be using this to create different decentralized applications on Definity? Yeah, so um, we've got a language called ActorScript, um, which we're going to release at some point. And we expect that people will use ActorScript to create web WebAssembly software that runs inside the web browser, and they'll also be able to use the same programming language to create WebAssembly software that runs on the internet computer. Okay. Huh. All right. So um, we're going to have to move super quickly through the last questions. Um, but you proposed a crypto fiat system called the Fee System, PHI. How does that work? So Fi is really a DAP that would run on top of Definity, uh, although it could also run on top of Ethereum. And it's a... a really a kind of imp algorithmic implementation of commercial banking. So it, it's a system that produces what we call uh, crypto fiat. So it produces tokens that mirror 
uh, you know, local fiat currencies. So you have like Phi USD, Phi CHF, Phi GPP, and so on. And it does that in the same way that commercial banks create money. So what a lot of people are so, so aware of is that you know the money we use in uh, you know in a modern economy is created by commercial banks, not the government. So, for example, in the U.S. or the U.K., 98% of the Money, you know, dollars or pounds, is actually created by commercial banks when they issue loans. So the way it works is, let's say, I'm a bank and you're a borrower and you want to borrow $100,000. I will simply create the $100,000 for you, and that goes onto my balance sheet as a liability. And then I'll make you sign a loan agreement. So you will promise to pay me back, say, $110,000 with interest. And that legal document, the loan, is an asset on my balance sheet. So let's say you know, I've created $100,000 to give to you, and now I've uh, made you sign a loan agreement, and you've got to pay me back $120,000. Well, there's some credit default risk, so I'll book that as a, an asset worth $110,000. So I've made nominally a $10,000 profit. Now, the interesting thing is that really that means that fiat money, you know, like dollars and pounds, is really an IOU. Okay, so all of the pounds and dollars are collateralized by these, um, you know, debt relationships. So let's say, you know, in order to convince me to create this hundred thousand dollars for you, you had to sign a loan agreement, which gave me a call um, on your collateral. That could be your personal guarantee. It could be your house, your car or whatever. And probably you'll you'll supply more collateral than you're than you're than you're borrowing. Right. And. There's lots of interesting um, properties. You know, if the value of the economy falls, well, as the value of those assets that you've provided as uh, collateral falls, so does the value of the fiat currency in synchrony, right? Because you know it's backed by collateral and that you know denominated in the same units, same currency units. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it, 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 it's a powerful system because it, it enables you to create large amounts of fiat. Right. Right. And, it's it's a fractional and, reserve system. Yeah. So fr- it, it is a fractional reserve system. I think the uh, like if you look at traditional economics textbooks, they show a kind of uh, you know a, a rising triangle. That's the traditional way of explaining it. But in practice, um, you know, for example, in, in a modern economy, the banks are less constrained by the, the sort of fractional reserve aspect of it than by risk. So in the UK, for example, there are no reserve requirements at all. Wow. Now, the, limit, the limiting factor is actually risk because if the bank becomes uh, insolvent because the liabilities, i.e. the money that it's created, are greater than its assets, i.e. the book value of those loans, it has to stop operating immediately. So when banks are thinking about how much they can lend, they're really looking at the risk of insolvency. And that, that's the limiting factor. So, as you know, something that's fueled the rise of Bitcoin and some of these other cryptocurrencies is the cap on the monetary supply and the fact that you cannot do the fractional reserve system. So do you feel like that runs any risks for you? And obviously, there's this whole flashback to the financial crisis that I think talking about fractional reserve banking brings to people. So do you have any worries about that? And how will you kind of prevent crises like that with this crypto fiat system you're building? 
So, um, you know, the, the notion of Bitcoin is, is very different. You know, the, the, the Bitcoin, in essence, is very different to a fiat currency. Um, you know, essentially, you fix the supply and, and then the value fluctuates with demand. And that's why it's so volatile. And that was the, you know, the magic trick that Satoshi pulled to create value in cyberspace. He just said, look, we're going to create these tokens. There'll only ever be this many. And thus, you know, if demand for these tokens increases, the price will rise. And that in itself actually creates demands for the tokens. Um, but when you're talking about, um, you know, more, uh, you know, standard economic sort of business requirements, um, you, you really need something like fiat, which is much more stable and where the, you know, the unit of account matches the value of assets in the economy, right? Or is linked to the value of assets in the economy. So it's certainly true that if the FI system, you know, made lots of unwise loans, the system could break. So the equivalent would be the financial crisis where banks were able to create all kinds of silly loans to people in subprime housing who had no chance of paying them back. And they were able to say, right, look, you want a million-dollar mortgage, say, I'm going I'm to create the million dollars, and I'm going right. to book this, this mortgage but, or something. But like are you building something into Definity to, or into this FI system to prevent that? Yeah, sure. So the design of FI aims to originate loans in a decentralized manner in a much more rational way, such that we you know, reduce the risk inherent in the system while creating effectively mirror fiat um, at much lower cost. Okay. So I wanted to ask you, between your pre-sale and your public sale, what was the markup on your tokens? Well, b- between the public seed round and the, the, the private round. So, so I think you're referring to, we did this um, public seed round at the beginning of 2017. It sort of predated the uh, ICO craze. Um, it was a very, very you know, kind of naive time. You know, we, we actually put a soft cap on it of $1 million. We said, look, we just need like a $1 million in the foundation and we'll raise more money later. And once we've reached, or well, $1 million Swiss francs, actually, and once we've reached that target, um, and, you know, people could uh, contribute using Bitcoin, Ether, or Swiss francs. Once we've reached that $1 million, then we're going to switch the systems off, systems off in a few hours. And, and we, we did that. And by the time the systems switched off, I think we collected like $3.9 million Swiss francs. But then, you know, the ICO market exploded and we sort of slightly um, leery of some of the practices. And so we, we sort of decided to stand back and we raised further money from, you know, hedge funds and venture capitalists and so on. And there's some really big name investors in, involved in the project. So uh, I think between the seed round and the last round, uh, which has raised, I'm not, not quite ready to announce it, but it's sort of like uh, we, we, the original target was like $90 million and it was oversubscribed. Um, it's like more than a hundred X markup. Okay. And how do you feel about having such a large markup for the everyday investor? Well, you know, I think it's, it's certainly true that, um, you know, there's like 400 people participated in that seed round and they've been very well rewarded, um, for their faith in the project. And, you know, that's, that's the nature of, um, you know, capitalism, sometimes there are big winners. And, you know, it's certainly true that seed investors have done very, very well indeed. Um, I still think there's, you know, enormous upside in the projects. So uh, I think it's just the beginning. Uh, but yeah, seed, seed investors have done very well. 
From a lot of your blog posts and also previous conversations I've had with you, it seems that technical innovation is one of the differentiators for Definity, if not the main differentiator. How do you plan to become the dominant platform on technical strength in an open source environment where any other team can take the technology you've built and add it to their platform when they may already be starting out with a greater network effect? Yeah, so it's a very good question. And I think any organization like Definity that's investing a huge amount of money into you know, the research and development of new science and development of software and so on has to think about that carefully. But first of all, you know, networks can you know, accrue network effects. Okay? Um, and you know, the Definity network, first of all, will launch a, a, a scale, I think, that will surprise a lot of people. The technology involved will be very complex. And we are building a kind of NASA for decentralization. So, you know, the Definity Foundation has, for example, you know, research centers in Palo Alto, Zurich, and people all over the world, people in Germany, UK, um, even got three people in Japan. And, you know, one of the factors um, that people wanting to build on the internet computer or a platform like that will take into consideration is what kind of group of people are standing behind that network, Right. And uh, honestly, um, it'll, the, the technology has become so complex, it's, it's very unlikely that, you know, some team out there that just wants to create a you know, quick fork will even understand, you know, the, the systems that the software are implementing. So, right. But it could be like really good developers, like from Ethereum or something. Um, look, I mean, I, I think, well, there's, there's two bits to this. So first, I mean, when, when the network launches in beta, it may be that some of it's closed source and it's sort of progressively you know, op- op- revealed with bounties for people who find bugs and things like that. So there will be a window where the network has an opportunity to, you know, establish itself. It's the, the, the technology involved is far too complex for you just to sort of dip in and just take some piece and add it, say, to Ethereum in order to give it some huge boost, right? Um, you'd really need to just to take the entire affinity system and use it to create a new network. But then, you know, if, if anyone looking to build on the internet computer has to ask the question, well, look, here's the, the real internet computer with this you know, large network of uh, you know, miners, which will be like professional hosting centers, you know, running tens of thousands of computers um, that's got this fantastic NASA for decentralization that's dedicated to continuing to develop it and help support it in production. What, you know, I think most people would choose to build on that network rather than just some network of a few nodes backed um, by some people that can't, can't develop their own technology. So I think... Right, but what I'm saying is, what if it's like a robust network that adopts some of the technology? Well, I, I, so I, I don't think... Adopting some of the technology is pretty tough. So, you know, the, the things engineered as a whole, and what I think people are going to see in, in the coming years is that, you know, the, the original simplicity of something like Bitcoin... Um, is replaced by things that are vastly more complex and sophisticated. So it's not just like you could just take the protocol and run it yourself on your network to improve it, right? You'd have to just sort of take the entire Definity stack and then, you know, with your own miners, create a competing network. So mm-hmm. th- that, that would be possible. It's true. But, you know, people will have to, I think people looking to build on the internet computer will have to consider whether they want to build on the sort of imitation network or they want to build on the network, which has vastly more, you know, computation, computational power, 
and also is backed by, you know, this NASA decentralization. Right. Okay. Great. Well, that's all the time we have, but this has been a fascinating discussion. Where can people learn more about you and Divinity? Thanks, Laura. Um, well, um, we're trying to make as much available uh, information available as possible. So uh, I think there's a series appearing on YouTube. I think there's one called Inside Divinity. Um, we're trying to push more and more information onto the website. Uh, there are social media channels, uh, Reddit, Telegram, and so on. And uh, we also, you know, attend a lot of conferences. And there are even Divinity meetups where you know you can go and meet members of the team. And uh, we, those have been taking place all over the world. Okay, great. All right. Well, thanks for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Dominic and Divinity, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Golapali, Fragile Recording, Jenny Josephson, Rahul Singh and Daniel Nuss. Thanks for listening. Thank you.